I first met Leanne when she was a young mother of four children, three daughters and one son. She had grown up not far from here in rural Kansas and followed her high school sweetheart to Texas where they began a family and a family business. Now, I don't know the exact details, but somewhere along the way, after all four children were grown, she and her only son, Dan, had what we would call a falling out. And in the midst of that falling out, she said to Dan, I don't ever want to see you again. And he stayed away, far away, at his home in Hawaii with his wife and his children. And the estrangement between Dan and his mom lasted about seven years. No text messages, no birthday cards, no Christmas cards, nothing. Complete cutoff. And then Leanne developed dementia. It later became Alzheimer's, but at the beginning, just a lot of memory loss. And each of her daughters living on different coasts would take turns and fly in and spend one month at a time at their mother's home, helping to coordinate her full-time care. And this went on for some time until one day, Leanne said to one of her daughters, you know, it's so sweet that you all come and, and spend this time with me and, and take care of me, and it's just lovely. And I've just been wondering, where's Dan? Why doesn't Dan ever come? And the daughter was shocked. Mother, do you want to see Dan? Well, if it's not too much trouble, I'd love to see him. And so Dan came on a plane from Hawaii and reunited with his mother because Alzheimer's had robbed her of her memory and she had forgotten why she was so angry with Dan. And though Alzheimer's took more and more from her over the years, what she gained was her son back, her family. And when she died just a couple of months ago at age 90, Dan was there on the front row at her funeral with his siblings, his wife, his children, though he had sworn for years that he would not appear at his own mother's funeral. Today's scripture lesson describes a broken relationship between a parent and a child. And in the text, the parent is God and the child is the whole people of God. The prophet Hosea writes a poem a poem about what is going on in the inner reaches of God's heart. Now, usually when you and I turn to a scripture, we'd like to get some guidance, maybe a lesson, some formula that we can follow, or at least a story with a moral to it. Give us some direction, God. We need God's guidance. But today, what Hosea gives us, it's a poem, just a poem about God's heart. I remember when I attended freshman orientation at Rockhurst High School because my son was an incoming student. And I remember listening to all the boring stuff and then this tall, bald, shoulder hunched over priest with the collar came to the podium and said in a very authoritative voice, now, when your little Johnny forgets his lunch and he calls you and says, Mom or Dad, bring me my lunch, I just want you to know that if you bring it, it will land on my desk 
and I will tear it open, and I will take the Skittles and the Cheetos and the other snacks I enjoy, and I will throw that lunch in the trash because it is time for your son to learn the natural consequences, to grow up and become a man. And I remember sitting there in the auditorium of that school and thinking, this is a man who has never had children. <laughs> he does not know the anguish of a parent's heart. And then I remember thinking that he was probably right, that there comes a time when we must let our children learn from the natural consequences so that they can grow up. In today's poem, we glimpse these two sides of God. God, the parent who would let the child suffer the natural consequences, and God, the parent who would jump in the car, lickety-split, and run that sack lunch right up to the principal's office. The poem intersperses passages of tough love, of wrath and fierce anger, with other verses depicting the intimate embrace of a parent cradling a newborn and putting that baby's soft cheek right up against your own. On the one hand, God is furious, angry, because God led the people into a land of milk and honey and built for them this glorious temple and gave them the rules for living called the Ten Commandments. They had everything they needed, and they forgot about God. They went and worshipped other gods. They forsook the ways of God, the ways of kindness and justice and peace. And so now they are in a heap of trouble. They are just about to be conquered by the nation to the north of Israel, the land of Assyria. And God's harsh anger spews out in the text, Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. God wonders right out loud if the right thing to do is to simply let Israel, God's own beloved, fall in battle and be captured and taken over by the nation to the north. Dare God let them fall into utter destruction. On the other hand, God in this text is head over heels, head over heels in love with this little child named Israel, the people that God chose. And so God goes and plays the memory game. God pulls out the home movie projector and puts in the reel of that time when God taught Ephraim to walk, and then loads another reel of home movies, the time that God taught Ephraim to ride a bike. And then, putting away the film, God sees a portrait there of the baby's cheek right up against the parents, and you can smell the sweetness of their love. God remembers with saying in the text, when. Israel was a child, I loved him. I led them with cords of human kindness and bands of love. I bent down to them and fed them. My compassion grows warm and tender, and so no, no, I'm not gonna destroy them. Scattered throughout my home are images of my son's childhood innocence. At the back door where you come in, there's a little metal coat hook where you can slide in a little picture about the size of the pictures you get 
every year in school. And when Connor was still a toddler, I cut out one of those little homeschool pictures and put it in the little coat hook so that he would know where to hang up his coat when he came in. And every year when a new school picture came, I put it in there, and when he was about in the fifth grade, I stopped. And so now if you come in the back door, you can see his little fifth grade chubby cheeks in that picture. And if you come on in to the kitchen, you'll see a little white trivet that he made when he was in kindergarten with his green paint handprint on it. I remember a time when Connor was a teenager and we argued and it was loud and he stormed out in a huff and I stood in the driveway crying and it seemed to me like that little handprint over the kitchen sink and those little chubby cheeks on the coat hook had vanished. There were times when he called home from college to explain why it would be a really great idea for him to drop out of college because college was actually quite useless, but I should continue to send the same amount of money to him every single month. And I was so angry I couldn't see straight and I completely forgot about the little green handprint over the sink and the little fifth grade chubby cheeks on the coat hook. So what do you suppose we could make of this poem showing the two sides of God in relationship to God's beloved humanity? Is God the one who always welcomes us home in love no matter what? Or is God the one who holds us accountable and judges us and lets us fail? Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, probably the best one of our time, and Brueggemann wrestles with what you and I might make of these parts of the Bible where it seems like God is bent on destruction and violence. Take, for instance, that time when God's people entered the Promised Land, but in order to move in and set up home in the Promised Land, they had to wipe out the Canaanite people. It was a brutal battle. Or that time when they fled slavery in Egypt by way of the Red Sea, but as they left, through the Red Sea, the Egyptian soldiers behind them drowned. And now, here in Hosea, God's own people are at risk of being punished for their sins. And Brueggemann says, what do we do with these images of violence in the text? The layup, the easiest way out, the easiest answer to all of this is to say that violence was only a human decision, that the people who wrote the text projected onto God, and God was not actually violent, but the people were, and they blamed it on God. And the second strategy is to notice, you know, that God kind of evolved, that God started out as harsh, but evolved into becoming this loving, caring, gentle parent, or at least humanity's perception of God evolved throughout time. But Brueggemann finds neither of these answers quite satisfactory, and so he suggests a third way of seeing. He says, maybe, maybe, God, maybe God is kind of in recovery. God is in anguish. God is wrestling with rage over how we have forsaken the ways of loving one another. And God is venting and fuming and weeping and ranting and wondering how it is that God could do anything to bring us back into God's own loving arms. And the reason I like this kind of third way of seeing is that it makes God into a real character, not just kind of a plastic, 
or cardboard figure that is set on the autopilot called love. No, this is the kind of God who chooses to love. This is the kind of God who in anguish pours out heart and soul into loving humanity with the same kind of tenderness that a parent devotes to raising his or her own child. The anguish of God validates ours because we too are made in God's image and we too find our hearts broken by love and we too cannot stop seeking ways to bring our children and our friends and our neighbors back into God's keeping. But to me, the real power of this image is not in reflecting on how we love, but on imagining for just a moment how we are loved by God. What does it mean to all of us as a community and to each of us as an individual to imagine God anguishing over how to love us? When my stepson, Kyle, was in junior high school, we got a telephone call that Kyle had been seen with some other kids after school up on Main Street smoking cigarettes. We sat down at the dinner table. We were firm in our resolve, and we brought up this rumor that we had heard. At the time, I had only been his stepmom for about a year and a half, and so I knew my role was to keep my mouth shut. But his dad, carefully and calmly, as any psychologist's dad would do, explained to him, you know, smoking is bad for your health. You're way too young to make this kind of decision, and nicotine is proven to be addictive. He kept saying all these wise things, and Kyle kept looking straight down at one spot on the hardwood floor, waiting for the lecture to pass, and then I began to cry. And Kyle looked up at me with this stunned look on his face because he didn't care about the lecture, and he didn't want any more information from the Surgeon General. But he too began to weep because he saw in my tears an anguished love for him, and it stunned him to know that his life actually mattered to me all that much. What does it do for you and for me to know that God anguishes over how to love us as the human race wrestles with how we can deal with 25 million refugees worldwide who are fleeing their homeland because of war and persecution and conflict what do you imagine God dreams about? As teenagers in our own affluent nation succumb to the plagues of depression and addiction and even suicide, what anguish do you imagine arising up in the heart of God? As the political discourse degenerates into name-calling and hate speech, what anguish do you picture God going through? The God that the prophet Hosea paints with this poem is the God who goes through the same kind of yo-yo feelings of rage and tenderness that we go through when we desperately want to love another person, and we will do anything to love that person. My mom and dad are wise people. 
They are 82 years old. When I told them in my mid-20s that I was going to get married to Dave Amon, they were worried. Dave was then and still is now 16 years older than me, and that's a big age gap. And Dave was the father of two teenagers, and that's a big responsibility for a young woman in her 20s who has never been a parent. And Dave had been divorced, and no one in our family had ever been divorced. And so my parents were very reluctant to give any approval to this union. And only at the last moment did I learn that they would be showing up at all in Telluride, Colorado for our wedding. And there were kind of two things happening the weekend of our wedding in Telluride. There were two dramas, if you will. There was the wedding with all the happiness and rejoicing and eating and drinking and all the family and friends gathered around. And then there was this other drama going on called parental disapproval. And it hung heavy in the air. My childhood pastor, Pastor Albert Pennybacker, was doing everything he could to dance back and forth between these two dramas. And on the morning of our wedding, I looked across the room at the bed and breakfast, and I saw Albert Pennybacker, the pastor, seated across the table with my parents, and they were talking quite seriously, but I don't know what they said. All I know is that right before the wedding that evening, my dad came back into the dressing room and he took my chin in his hands and he cradled my cheeks and with tears in his eyes, he said, your mom and I, we wanna pay for the wedding reception tonight. And I knew that love is real because sometimes love comes through anguish.